Hey, what's good, Rocky Peak? How are we doing this morning? It is great to be with you once again. Special welcome to those of you that are joining us or watching for the very first time. Welcome to Rocky Peak this weekend. If you and I have not had the chance to meet yet, my name is Dre. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and I'm going to lead us in that time of teaching. But before we do, I've got two things that I want to say. First of all, now that I've gotten to watch that video several times now, I'm incredibly grateful for what God allows us to do as a church globally, but I don't think it gets said enough, and because he's here today, hey, Brian, thank you for your leadership with that and your call, because that has deeply, deeply impacted our church. And the second thing, as we go into our time of teaching, I just felt the Lord put this on my heart to remind myself, let alone remind us, that when we gather here each and every weekend, this can become part of our beautiful routine, but we need to remember that every time we gather, everything we do together is anything but ordinary. Think about what this is. We are gathered here with different stories, different backgrounds, but we are gathered here because we have been set free because of the cross of Jesus the King. When we come and we sing these songs, we're not merely going through the motions, but we are making declarations of truth, of who Jesus is, of the spirit he's given us, of who we are as a result. That's not ordinary. We're gonna spend some time right now opening up God's word which as I've said before, isn't simply ink on a page or words on a screen, but this is the breath of God breathing life into us. That's not ordinary. And so I found it important from my heart and I hope it's an encouragement to you that as we gather as the church week in and week out, what we do is not ordinary. So let's rest and let's celebrate in that as we go into this time of teaching, amen? So if you haven't done so already, pull out that message note sheet, which is gonna be a great tool to follow along this time. I'm gonna pray and we're gonna get started. Jesus, this gathering is not ordinary because you are not ordinary. You are so much more than I can wrap my mind around. You are so much more than I could ever possibly comprehend. Specifically, your love is more than I could ever fully understand. And because of that, in the most beautiful way, your love is overwhelming. Your love is never ending. Your love is transformative. Your love is there being poured out to me in my times of good, in my times of plenty. Your love is being poured out in my times of challenge, in my times of sorrow. Your love is gonna be with me for all of eternity. And so Jesus, as your church, we are gathered this weekend to boldly and beautifully say, we want to experience more of your love. We want to experience more of your love that forgives us of our sins, more of your love that heals us emotionally, that releases us from bondage, more of your love that empowers us to go and be a light in a world that has yet to know you, Jesus. We are here because we are asking for more and you freely give more. And so Jesus, we don't need to ask you to speak because you already are as your church. We're committed to listening to what you have to say. 
As the communicator, as I often pray the words of John the Baptist, I pray that I would become far, far less, that I would fall by the wayside this morning, that you, King Jesus, the one and only King, would become much, much more. And it's in your name, King Jesus, that we all said, amen. Rocky Peak this weekend, we're going to be continuing the series that we've been in. It's been a while. I lost track of time at this point. We've been in the series for a while called Christ, Culture, and the Cross. And so if you're joining us for the first time, what the series has been, it's been an in-depth study in the letter of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, the second half of our Bibles. And 1 Corinthians was written by a key leader in the early movement of Jesus, a man that we refer to as the Apostle Paul. And Paul is addressing this letter to a church, to Christ followers, that were living in one of the most important cities of the ancient Roman Empire, the city of Corinth. And Paul had helped start this church three years prior. And as we read through this letter, we see that this church had a spectacular beginning. People gave their hearts to Jesus, and as a result, they experienced some wonderful supernatural empowerment and highs. But what had happened in the three years since is that they had started getting off track. They had stopped listening and obeying to the leadership of Jesus. They instead began listening and obeying to the leadership of the culture around them. And so as we get to 1 Corinthians three years later, the polite way to put it is this church is a mess. But Jesus doesn't quit on his church. And the Apostle Paul is empowered to write to them, to address these issues, to restore and refocus them. And so several weeks ago, as we entered into chapter 7, Paul begins to answer some specific questions that this church had asked them. The questions are around this issue of what does it look like to live for Jesus in an increasingly hostile and a very pagan culture? And last week, we started chapter 8, in which Paul began to address the second question that was asked, is it okay for a follower of Jesus to eat meat that had been sacrificed to a pagan idol, that had been sacrificed to a Greek or Roman god. And last weekend, as we began to unpack this scripture, Paul begins to address this question by first reestablishing a big picture, reestablishing a foundation for which to think through this and other questions like it. And they're in the front of your note sheet. One of the key scriptures from last week. For us, there is but one God, the Father from whom all things come and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things come and through whom we live. And so once again, Paul is giving us this wonderful reminder that when we give our lives to Jesus, as I've often said, the result is now that we become slightly better versions of who we were before. But when we give our lives to Jesus, it's the beginning of a radical transformation that transforms everything about us from the core of our being, from the inside out. And so now the way we think about every area is different. The way we then act and approach every area is now different. And why this matters is when we process significant issues we're facing, this is our foundation. We are new creations because of the cross of Jesus. And as a transition from last week to this week, Michael made this statement. 
when we're making decisions on how to live, it's not just a matter of whether it's right or wrong, but you need to look through the lens of how will your actions impact others in the body of Christ. The most important thing is not to be right on every issue. The most important thing is to love and build up the body. To go from me to we is a radical transformation is one that can only happen through the supernatural work of Jesus in our hearts. And Paul is teaching us that is our foundation to think through the issue at hand. And so with that, we're now going to address the specific issue of meet to idols. So there in your note sheet, there's a section titled, Should We or Shouldn't We? And if you got your Bibles, open them up. If you got your apps, turn them on. We're gonna be going to 1 Corinthians chapter eight. First Corinthians chapter eight, we're gonna be starting at verse seven, which was the verse we left off at last week. And you know me, Rocky Peak, if you got a highlighter or a pen ready, you've got the highlight function in your app, get it ready because we are gonna make it messy this morning. So starting at verse seven, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Would you underline or highlight the word knowledge? And so this is continuing what happened in the earlier verses, what we covered last week, is that Paul is quoting the position of some of the more mature believers at the church who are saying, it's fine that we eat this meat, right? Because we know that there is no God but Jesus. We know that there is no Lord but Jesus. And these idols, they're just marble. They're just stone, they're just wood, they are nothing. So it's fine that we eat, right? And one important note is Paul doesn't disagree with this. He affirms this, it's what he refers to as the knowledge. I know there's nothing there and it's only Jesus. But he says again in verse seven, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God, and since their conscience is weak, would you underline or highlight that? Conscience is weak. Last week, Michael talked about that as being a, a confusion or an unclarity as to what is right or wrong in this issue. Since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. And so let's stop right there, and I want to spend a little bit of time reminding us about the issue, as well as the, the culture they're living in, because this question of meat sacrificed to an idol is a significantly complex question. But not only was it complex, it was deeply emotionally charged. And so let's recap a little bit of the context Michael gave us last week about what it was like to live in the Roman Empire. Because the better we understand the era they're in, the more we're gonna understand what scripture is teaching us. And so to live in the Roman Empire, idol worship, worship of the Greek and the Roman gods was deeply, deeply embedded in their everyday life. As Michael put it, there was no such thing as a separation between church and state, so to speak. And this specific issue, meat, very much reflected that. 
Because the majority of meat that was sold and bought in Eden in the Roman Empire had been sacrificed to a pagan idol. And so what I want to do is I want to just build a visual, because I'm a visual learner, of what it might have looked like to just simply go and buy meat at this time. So Andre, would you throw that picture up for me, please? So if you were to go to Corinth today, this is a viewpoint of what's left of the central market. The agora was the word you could use. And this is a taste. It doesn't look like much now. But if we go back several thousand years ago, this was God's are us. If you wanted to go and buy meat, you were surrounded by temples. And so there in your note sheet, look at this quote. Discussing the central agora, the market square of Corinth, Pausanias, he was the Greek geographer that Michael quoted last week, mentions temples and statues for, buckle in, Rocky Peak, Dionysus, Artemis, Bacchus, Fortune, Poseidon, Apollo, Aphrodite, Hermes, Zeus, Zeus of the underworld, which is Hades, Zeus of the Most High, and the Muses. And it keeps going. Two general markets hug the wall of the great archaic pagan temple. That's likely referring to the giant temple of Aphrodite that was in Corinth. And a fish and a meat market was across the narrow street. On the west side of the Agora was a huge temple dedicated to the imperial cult. That was the worship of Rome itself as a god. That was the worship of the Caesars as a god. And so you see, the meat markets are surrounded by all the temples because that's where the meat came from. So this question carried a lot of significant implications. It carried financial implications for the average working class family or the poor lower class family. The only way you could afford meat was if it had been sacrificed. Meat was at its cheapest during festivals for gods because that was when it was the most abundant. But it also carried some significant social implications. If you were gonna go over to a friend or family members for dinner and they served meat, it likely came from a temple. If you were gonna go to a banquet or a celebration or a birthday party or the Roman equivalent of Chuck E. Cheese and they served meat, it came likely from a temple. And so again, we see why this was such a pressing question, but that leads to the conflict over this question that is happening in the church. And so what we see is we see these two groups that are each arguing there is one way to follow Jesus well in this issue. And hear that again. Their argument is that there is one way to follow Jesus well in this issue. There's one group that we would call them the strong, and that word might seem a little harsher in comparison to the weak, but I'll talk about that in a minute, that they would say what we said earlier, they're just statues. We have been changed by Jesus. We know there's no power there. We're free to eat this meat. And then there would be the other side. They're not just statues. That's pagan worship, that's idolatry. We don't wanna go anywhere near it, and so the right way to honor Jesus would be to abstain from that meat. Now let's pause right there and reflect on something. Can you feel the tension? Can you feel the tension 
within the passion of each side. Now, one thing I want to clarify is this word weak. Because the Greek word we've translated into the English weak, in English, it sounds harsher than I think it's intended to be. And so while I don't want to ignore that word, I want to introduce another term that I think would be helpful to really understand what Paul is referring to when he says weak. And it's not a perfect word, but I think it's helping. It's the word younger. That Paul is referring to younger believers. And I don't necessarily mean physical age, but it just means that they are new at following Jesus, or at the very least, they are new at following Jesus in this area. So they have not had the discipling yet, the time or the experience that some of the older, the more mature believers have experienced in this church. And so that's what he means when he's referring to them. And so now that we've set a foundation, Paul is now going to address an answer to this conflict. Verse 8. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Would you underline or highlight that last phrase? We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. And so do you realize what Paul just said? They're asking him the question, which way is right? Should we or shouldn't we? And Paul's answer is both. Now, if you were reading that as the church of Corinth, would you be really annoyed by that answer? Because I would. Because I'd be sitting there going, you can't say both. Pick a side. Who's right and who's wrong? And why would I be really annoyed? Because tell me what to do. That's easier. But Paul has never wanted us to take the easy route. He's wanted us to experience more, and this becomes a catalyst for a deeper growth in all of us, that what Paul does by saying both is that he unpacks that this issue is an important issue. This issue is a passionate issue, but this issue is what we would call a secondary issue. And so what I mean by that is when we look throughout Scripture, we use the language of primary and secondary a lot here at Rocky Peak. We see that Scripture is incredibly clear in what we would call the primary issues of faith. Primary are issues in which it would be impossible to walk with, to follow Jesus without being rooted in those issues. And so examples of primary in Scripture is sin that we lost our relationship with God the Father due to our sins. An example of primary would be salvation. We are saved through the death and resurrection of Jesus and Jesus alone. The example of primary in scripture would be the most important thing we could be doing in our lives is to continue to love God more and love people more, what is often called the greatest commandment. An example of primary is how scripture describes 
describes itself, the word, that like I said, it's not simply words on a page, but it is God breathed. It is the word of God to us directly. Another example would be the first question that Michael addressed over several weeks, this idea of sexual purity, that this is God has a plan and a beautiful plan for it between a husband and a wife and anything else falls outside of his plan. So those would be examples of what we would call the primary, the non-negotiable. And then throughout scripture, we see examples of what we call at Rocky Peak, the secondary. And what I would briefly define as how I would define secondary is this. Secondary are issues in which scripture intentionally allows room for differences in which scripture intentionally allows room for differences. That these didn't fall through the crack and God went, oh, I forgot to talk about that. <laughs> that there is an unclarity, if you will, that is intentional, we're gonna see why. So here would be some examples on a theological side of that. In a few weeks, we're gonna get to this issue of the supernatural gifts of the Spirit. And there are Christ followers that believe that these supernatural gifts are still active in our churches and in our lives today. And then there are other Christ followers that believe that those supernatural gifts were given to them for a time and a moment in their lives, but they have ceased in the modern age. Another example is that if you're going through the early chapters of Genesis and you've ever wondered how old is the earth? There are some Christ followers that would think, well, the earth is several thousand years old. There are some that will say it's several billion years old. There are some that would think, well, I think those old period chapters are allegorical. There is this, uh, there, it's not just theological secondary issues, but often there can be secondary issues when it comes to methodology. A great example is what should a church weekend service look like? What is the style of preaching that a church should have? Here's a good hot one. What about music? Oh yeah, that got uncomfortable, huh? What kind of music should a church be doing? How should you be dressed when you go to church? And so hear me something. When we are dealing with a secondary issue, secondary does not mean it's not important. Secondary is still important issues. We get passionate about secondary issues and we are invited to be passionate. We are invited to take a stand. We are invited to have thoughts and opinions on secondary issues. In fact, secondary issues impact decisions we make about our communities, about how we live. And so Paul is not simply trying to annoy the Corinthians or annoy us by referring to this as a secondary issue issue, but he wants more out of our growth. And here's what he's getting at. If we're going to think well about the secondary, it can't happen unless we are rooted in the primary. Too often, we let the secondary dictate the primary. We let the secondary become primary. Paul is reminding them, and he's reminding us, no, it's the other way around. Root yourselves in the primary, and that becomes the filter through which you think of the secondary. And he's going to come back to what the primary is, and that's love. Love is what's primary. 
If we're going to think well, if we're going to have conflict well over these secondary issues, to do it well means we are rooted in the love that Jesus has shown us. And so he continues in verse 9. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Would you underline or highlight that? And so you see he's now specifically referring to the, what I would call the older believers, the more mature believers. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to an idol? And so the first thing we see is that Paul is establishing, yes, church, there is such a thing as secondary issues. In fact, there on your note sheet, you see that there's an area for two truths on this passage? That's the first one. The first fill-in is there are secondary issues. Now, there's another part to that statement that I'm going to finish in a little bit. But as he's unpacking this truth, he now again begins to talk to the mature believers. And he says, yes, you have freedom. Yes, you have this wonderful rights. In fact, the word rights in the Greek could be translated to authority. As an older sibling, so to speak, you have authority. And so he's challenging us, are you using your authority for the growth of the younger siblings in your church? Paul's not disagreeing with their stance on meat. Paul is not taking that away from them, but Paul is saying there is a primary that we need to be rooted in first, and that primary is growth. As the older siblings, are you committed to the growth of the brothers and sisters around you to the point where this is the question he's asking, are you willing to sacrifice your rights and your freedom for the growth of the family around you? Now it got uncomfortable, didn't it? Because I sit there with my heart and my pride and I go, whoa, wait a minute. Why do I need to sacrifice? I'm right. This is just going to help them grow. Get over yourself and follow me and do this. This is how you mature. This is, I don't get it. I'm the strong one. Why do I need to sacrifice? And I'm not going to make you raise your hand and everything, but do you share in my uncomfortability in that? We sit there and go, whoa, 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 sacrifice my freedom? I don't like this. And so let's finish the second half of that phrase in your note sheets. There are secondary issues and they cause tension. Oh man, how much money would we pay to eliminate all tension from our lives? What would we give up? What would we sacrifice? How many body parts would we cut off if it would lead us to a life that was free from tension? But the reality is we are promised that life on the other side of heaven. While we were made on this side of heaven, we are always going to be experiencing tension in this life because it's a broken world. 
And so when it comes to these secondary issues in particular, they are experiencing tension, just like we experience tension amongst our church family. You know why they're experiencing tension? Because they're passionate over these issues. If they didn't care, they'd be like, yeah, fine, whatever, do what you want to do. But they are passionate that this is how you follow God. Eat the meat or abstain from this meat. And let's unpack passion for a little bit. God's gift to us is the gift to be passionate. We are passionate beings because we are designed to be so, because our passion is a reflection of who God is. God is a passionate God. And so our passion and our ability to become passionate for people, organizations, for God himself, over things and other areas in our lives, that is a gift that God has given us. It is one of our strengths as created beings. But like any strength being applied by a sinful person, it can also become a weakness. Our passion rooted in the wrong things, in this specific case, our passion rooted in the secondary can become a blinding agent to what is primary. Our passion rooted in the secondary can blind us to what is primary. Because let me ask you this, do you think for the two sides on this issue that the issue felt secondary to them? When you think of issues that you are incredibly passionate about, does it feel secondary to you? And in fact, if you are incredibly passionate and in a moment of heated passion to hear somebody say it's a secondary issue, how does that make you feel? You're gonna punch that person. Passion can be misused. Or I can think about it. Have you ever lost your cool? I didn't even get further in that question. People responded. <laughs> Found yourself angry. Found yourself deeply upset because you were defending something you are passionate about that in the long run doesn't really matter. Have you ever been surprised at how passionately you've defended something like a sports team? <laughs> or a movie? Or a restaurant? Now that's at the surface of our hearts. Now let's go deeper into the things that matter, the passion with which we defend those that we love the most, the passion which, which that we defend God and what it means to follow him well. And again, passion is a beautiful thing, but passion can also lead us to make terrible, terrible decisions. And so what Paul is reminding us of is that passion is not meant to be minimized. To use passion well is to root it in the primary. And so again, we feel this tension and this struggle of, but I'm right when it comes to meat sacrifice to idols. And Paul is agreeing, yeah, you are. And be passionate about that, but don't let that take away from the biggest primary, the biggest passion that we have the opportunity to love our family as Jesus loves us with a beautiful love. And in fact, as he continues, he paints this picture for us in verse 12. Excuse me, verse 11. So this weak brother or sister, would you underline and highlight that? Brother or sister for whom Christ died, would you underline and highlight that phrase as well? Christ died, 
is destroyed by your knowledge. Meaning my freedoms in this case is severely gonna hamper their ability to grow in Christ. Is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Would you underline or highlight that phrase? You sin against Christ. And that's a powerful statement to make, right? And we can read this verse and immediately on the surface see, man, what a guilt-ridden, what a shameful verse, but that's not the intent. What Paul is doing in this verse is he is rooting us in the primary passion, and that's the love of Jesus. And so when it comes to this conflict, when it comes to this tension, when it comes to these secondary issues within the church, Paul is focusing us on the primary, first and foremost. You and the other person or you and the other group are people that Jesus died for. You are loved. You are beloved. You are valued, you are worth because of his cross. And because of that, you're not dealing with mere strangers. You're not dealing with people that are outright enemies. You're dealing with family. And family can drive you crazy sometimes. But you love them. You stand for them. And so remember, Paul is encouraging us, see them as Christ sees them, as someone who he died for, because when it comes to tension and conflict, that changes how we go about that. But not only that, that was the first area. The second thing he's reminding us is that as older believers, more mature believers, but not perfect believers, older and more mature believers, you have a responsibility to your younger brother and sister to lead them well, to model the love of Christ well. And again, it's not an obligatory, but it is an opportunity because Jesus has loved each and every one of us with a sacrificial love. We as the older siblings have the opportunity to love our younger brothers and sisters with that same sacrificial love. Let me give you an example, an illustration of what this can look like. And what was beautiful was unprompted. I saw this in my own children just about a week ago. See, the, my three elementary age kids, their school about once a year does a day where it's called walk to school day, where a few blocks away from our kids' school, there's a local park. And so instead of getting dropped off at the school, you drop off the kids at the park and it's a community event. There were like firefighters and police officers there, their administrators were there. And so the kids get to run around and be rowdy at the playground. And then when it's time, the teachers and the administrators, they'll walk them the however many blocks over to school to start their day. And so as I took my kids and I was getting ready to drop them off, there were other parents that were staying just to make sure that their kids made it to school. I didn't have the ability to do that. I had to leave and I found myself concerned, particularly over my younger two, because they're a little too much like their father at times, meaning that I get distracted, confused, and lost pretty easily. And so I'm sitting there realizing this going like, oh, I could see them ending up on the other side of Simi Valley. And so I'm talking with the three of them, trying to figure this out, and unprompted, my oldest, my 10-year-old Gabriel, he just looks at me and goes, Dad, 
I got this. I'm going to make sure they get to school. And I'm kind of taken aback. And he looks at them and he immediately comes up with a plan. Hey, when it's time to go, meet me here at the swing set and follow me to school. And I knew what this kid was risking when he was doing this. I knew that Gabriel was sacrificing time with his friends. I knew that he was sacrificing social standing by being seen with his younger siblings as he went in. I knew that he was sacrificing mental sanity to make sure my younger two don't just run off after something. And yet he modeled what Paul is talking about. As the older sibling, he took this responsibility. He made sacrifices, and he didn't just say to them what to do. He said, follow me, and I'm going to walk with you. Love is our primary. And in fact, we see this as Paul closes it out in verse 13. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin... I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Would you underline or highlight that? So that I will not cause them to fall. And so Paul, as an older brother to all of us, decides to model this. Again, Paul is affirming we are free to eat the meat without spiritual implications. However, if that is going to stunt the growth of our younger brothers and sisters, then I will sacrifice that for the sake of their growth in Jesus the King. And you know what's amazing about that is Christ followers, wherever you are on your Christian journey, some of us are younger and starting off. Some of us are mature and we've been walking and growing for many, many years. But wherever you are, we still need people to love us like that. Because we all have areas of weakness. We all have areas where we will stay perpetually young so to speak. We all have areas, as Paul would describe in another letter, that are thorns in our side. Each and every one of us can look at our Christian life and go, man, God has grown me in this area. But we can also look at other areas that have been much slower going, haven't they? that have been much harder and painful. And in those areas, it can bring us insecurity as we look at other believers who seem to be on the fast track in those areas. And for whatever reason, we look there and we still see it as an area of weakness. In my own life, as I've shared many times, that will often be an area of anxiety and fear, that I'm quick to resort to fear, quick to resort to anxiety, quick to make decisions out of that faulty foundation that will always be an area of weakness. And so I have benefited greatly from my more mature, my older brothers and sisters in that area who have loved and sacrificed for me. Think about the people, the believers that have loved and sacrificed their freedom and their rights for you. No matter where we are in our walk with Christ, we need this love. And we are invited and we are given an opportunity to show others, to love others in this way. And the most beautiful thing about that is where does Paul get the strength? 
See, sometimes we can envision Paul as being this Christian superhero. And hear me, he was a great, great man and a great leader and a great model to follow. But he was still, at the end of the day, just a man with imperfections like you and I. And so how can Paul make the sacrifice? How can he make multiple sacrifices? Why doesn't he quit on this mess of a church at Corinth? Because Paul is continually choosing to experience how much Jesus loves him. And he is then showing us as his brothers and sisters that same love. What he is experiencing is becoming the overflow that is empowering him to give away, to show others that love. And that leads me to that last truth, that second fill in there, is tension is an opportunity for transformation. Tension is an opportunity for transformation. Remember I talked about God intentionally allows room in these secondary issues? And this is true in any area in life in which we experience tension, but what does tension teach us? We don't have all the answers. We don't know everything. We don't always know what to do or where to go. Intention is an opportunity to go before Jesus as our primary identity, his disciple, his student, his sons and daughters, and say, Jesus, I don't know what to do. Teach me. Teach me. You know, there in your note sheet from John chapter 6, this is one of the most famous miracles of Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000. It says that when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, and again, I want to build some context. The number 5,000 is kind of misleading. It was 5,000 men, but when we add up the women and the children that were there, the number was likely closer to 20,000. So that's the capacity of the Staples Center in downtown LA. And so Jesus and his disciples, they did not plan logistically for a crowd like this. Specifically, the issue was how are we we going to feed them? So emotionally connect with the disciples here. You are seeing the staple center walking towards you. Jesus looks at you. And as we see, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him for he had already in mind what he was going to do. So again, you're seeing the staple center coming. Jesus looks at you and says, how are we going to solve this? <laughs> do you feel the tension? but we have that editorial comment. Jesus isn't asking because he doesn't know. He already knows what he's going to do. But the reason why he's doing that is because it's in tension that we learn the truth. When I experience tension, conflict, unclarity, difficulty, am I really gonna turn to Jesus or am I gonna turn to my own ideas and devices? We don't know the truth of what we're gonna do without tension. Tension is an opportunity to turn to Jesus. And like this example in John 6, to fix our eyes on him and say, what do you want to do? How should I think through this? How should I approach this? And so with that, as we wrap up our scripture, what I want to spend the rest of our time doing is 
When it comes to these secondary issues, but again, we could apply this to difficulties, to conflicts, to tension in any area of our lives. The command is to be rooted in the primary, which is love. And too often, our first step is to immediately look outwards and look at the other person. But the apostle is giving us the opportunity to experience more, and that more starts with us internally before we can look or move externally. And so what are the ways that we can root ourselves in the primary? And there on your note sheet, you've got a section titled Loving Amiss Tension. And so when we spend time one-on-one with Jesus in conflict, in tension, in particular over these secondary issues, but again, this can work for any conflict in your life, Again, sometimes we're blinded by our passions and by our rights and by our freedoms and we need Jesus who is not to open our eyes. And so Paul lists out four areas, I would say, that Jesus needs to open our eyes and that's the prayer I'm inviting you to say with Jesus one-on-one. Jesus, we need you to open our eyes too. And your first fill in the first area is this. We need Jesus to open our eyes to his cross to his cross. And in fact, out of the four, this is the one I'm gonna spend the most time on. If I were to make a summary of Paul's writing of 1 Corinthians, if I were to make a summary of Paul's writings throughout the entire New Testament, it would be fix your eyes on the cross of Jesus. Fix your eyes on the cross of Jesus. And as we go through Paul's writing in the New Testament, as more specific questions get asked, he keeps coming back to that. If we go, Paul, how do I grow as a believer? Fix your eyes on the cross of Jesus. Paul, how do I grow with healthy friendships or healthy relationships? Fix your eyes on the cross of Jesus. Paul, how do I deal with issues of pride or issues of my priorities being out of whack? Fix your eyes on the cross of Jesus. Paul, Paul, how do we improve our marriages or our parenting. Fix your eyes on the cross of Jesus. Paul, how do we live in a world that doesn't believe? Fix your eyes on the cross with Jesus. And he goes on and on and on. And the reason why he starts everybody on that foundation is when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we are regularly reminded of how loved we are. When we forget how loved we are, we have no shot of loving others well. And so this is the foundation. This is what we need Jesus to continually remind us. As Michael's been saying, the core character of Jesus, his love is most revealed on his cross. And when we look at the cross of Jesus, we see a love that sacrifices for us. We see a love that was unearned. I couldn't earn it. You couldn't earn it. I couldn't deal with my sin. It was an act of grace. We see a love that is transformational, that experiencing his love is not a one-time event, but it is a regular, it is an outpouring. We see that his love is eternal. Christ follower, and I don't mean this question in any type of guilt or shame. I mean this as an opportunity. When was the last time you carved out a moment to pause and reflect on how much Jesus loves you? When was the last time you paused to reflect on what that cross means for you specifically? When we do that, We find rest, we find celebration, 
we find empowerment. It changes things deeply. You know, in my own life, the Lord had to bring this reminder to me in the form of just a beautiful conviction. See, I'm sure many of you can relate. I found myself just in a season of exhaustion, just living my normal everyday life, like for many of you, is exhausting. And in addition to that, we've been in a season of having to make some hard decisions. We've been in a season of loss and mourning. We've been in a season of my health flaring up in significant ways again. We've been in a season of exhaustion, and I've been running hard trying to make it to the next day and the next day and the next day. What I did not realize until the Lord pointed out is I had become numb to how much he loves me. And so as I sought the Lord for what do I do, he prompted me to seek wise counsel and I sought out my friend Steve, who's one of our pastors here and one of the greatest human beings that have ever lived. And Steve encouraged me, he's like, Drake, take 10 to 15 minutes at the end of your day. Just sit alone before the Lord and replay your day. Replay all your moments and ask Jesus to open your eyes, not to if he was loving you, but how he was loving you in each and every moment, in the good, in the bad, and everything in between. It was a simple encouragement, and yet it's been one of the most impactful things of my spiritual life. Because as I've sat in my backyard doing that most evenings, I've seen his cross in my day. I've seen his cross in my conflicts and my trials. I've seen his cross in my celebrations and in my joys. I've seen Jesus and that is restoring, that is reinvigorating me. And what I realized when I was numb is not only was I numb to receiving, but I was numb to loving others. Now because I'm experiencing that love in a fresh way, I'm seeing that the way I approach and engage with people is changing as well. If we're gonna love people well in the midst of tension, it begins with his cross and seeing him clearly. There in Yenochi, one of my heroes, former philosophy professor of U at UFC, the U USC, the late great Dallas Willard said, we are not able to love one another because we do not have our minds filled with an accurate vision of God. So that's the starting point. The next one, your second fill-in is our family. And this one is gonna go quick, but it's the reminder that when we're dealing with tension, when we're dealing with conflict about these secondary issues or any other thing that comes up, there gonna be a temptation to see the other person as a problem to be solved, not as a brother and sister to be loved. And so with the cross of Jesus, I need his strength and his power to open my eyes to the fact that I'm not dealing with a mere problem, to show me that I'm dealing with more than an issue. I'm dealing with a brother and sister that Jesus died for. The third one is my motives. I need Jesus to open my eyes to why I want to be right. What do I want to gain? Because a lot of us, we have answers, and they're good answers, and I'm sure there's truth in those answers, and our answers would be like, well, we're doing it for Jesus. 
We're doing it for the sake of following Jesus. We're doing it for the church. We're doing it for the Christ followers. And that's true and that's good. But I would also say often that's the surface answer. But there's usually something below the surface that we may not even realize. To the Corinthians, they would say, well, we want the younger to grow. But in reality, Paul, Paul was able to show them, no, we want to do what we want to do. And so what I need is I need help to see my heart when it comes to these issues. Because yes, I wanna do it for Jesus. Yes, I wanna stand with God. But what I realize is that when Jesus reveals the deeper issues, that's where transformation takes place. Because what I don't realize is yes, I wanna do it for Jesus, but I'm doing it out of a root of fear. Or I'm doing it out of a root of anger. Or I'm doing it out of a root of I don't wanna lose my comfortability. Or I'm doing it at a root that I wanna stay with this model of safety that I've created for myself. And so what do we need? We need eyes that are bigger than ours to shine a light into what we don't see. Recently, I've become acquainted with an author named Anne Kennedy, and she blogs and writes often for publications like the Gospel Coalition. And I've been reading a devotional she wrote recently. She writes there in your note sheet, so often the introduction of light into a room seems like exactly the wrong thing. The soul reels back and tries to apply the dimmer, and we can relate to that, right, in two ways. Ever turned on the light in a dark room and it just hurt? Or what about this experience? Have you ever turned on the light and the room was far more messy than you expected it to be? And you're like, I just want to turn that light off and pretend I didn't see this. The truth is, that's often how we approach God revealing what's in our hearts. But she goes on, but God's light is sure and true. Eventually, the eyes adjust and the big obstacles to trust and love thrown away. God reveals truth not to guilt and shame us, but to restore us, to give us an opportunity to approach these issues filled with the confidence that we are rooted in love and not rooted in fear or anger or anything else like in the way of the primary. So we need Jesus to shine a light on this. And then finally, the last thing is then we need his leading after we sit with him and do the internal work, then we can ask, what's the next outward step? What do you want me to do? And that could be, do you want me to have a conversation? But that conversation is gonna have a different tone to it with the first three in place. Do you want me to seek wise counsel, somebody who will tell me the truth? Am I making too much of this? How do I approach this in a way that is still loving but truthful to what I believe? Maybe he's gonna ask you to do a little more research on the issue. Maybe Jesus' next step is we still need to talk. And so stay before me. Stay with me in prayer for a little while. Maybe the next step is sacrifice but not in an obligatory way. This is our opportunity. Whatever it is, we want to let Jesus lead. And so as we close out our time of teaching, as I invite the worship team to come back out, Rocky Peak, this is why we close our services the way we do, that I invite you often, Michael invites you often to be with the Lord as a result of what we do here on the weekend. And we end these times with a song to give you an opportunity to do business with God to approach him, to be reminded of how much he loves you, to experience beautiful repentance or empowerment from his spirit. And so as we 
go into the song, which is a beautiful declaration of God, I want to recommit over and over again that I want to be rooted in your primaries. Allow the Holy Spirit to lead your posture. For some of you, you're gonna stand and sing loudly. For some of you, you're gonna sit and receive. For some of you, it's gonna be something else the Spirit prompts you, but this is your time to be before the Lord. And so I'm gonna pray to lead us into it. Jesus, we thank you for your cross and we don't want to be numb to it. We don't want to be numb to the love that was given to us, that is given to us now and for all of eternity. We don't want to be numb to the love that has restored our hearts and our souls. We don't want to be numb to the fact that we are now gifted the ability to love others as you love us. And sometimes that's in situations of tension. Sometimes that means sacrifice. But again, it's the way we are being loved by you now. And so this is our opportunity. And so Jesus, root us in your cross. Root us in the primary. As the song is gonna lead us, we surrender. And as we need to, we re-surrender over and over again to your beauty, your cross, and your love. And it's in your name, King Jesus, we all said, amen.